Amen. Let us pray together as we come back to God's Word in Acts 18 this morning. Pray with me. Our God and our Father, we do pray that you would be glorified in the preaching of your Word today. And so we're here to ask for your help, Father. Help me to be able to explain it. Help us to be able to understand it. Help us not to just understand it, but to trust it. Help it to expose, like the double-edged sword that it is, any sin that remains in us. Help it to lead us in the way everlasting. Help it to cause us to grow in grace as we grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help it to transform us by the renewing of our minds. Father, help it to cause us to live our lives in ways that please you and glorify you. And so may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke is the one who wrote, of course, the book of Acts, and he wrote the Gospel of Luke also. In the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 21, Jesus was teaching his disciples, and he was preparing his disciples for a life of following him, a life of bearing up their crosses, a life of counting the cost, a life that says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, a life of seeking first the kingdom and the righteousness of God and forsaking every other primary concern in this life, not being primarily concerned with the cares and the things of this world. And so Jesus said to his disciples there in Luke 21, these words, listen, he said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But you must stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. And that wisdom, that admonition, that warning that Jesus gave to his disciples is, I think, something that we as Christians and disciples and followers of Jesus cannot ever hear too often. Because while we're living in this world, it is always, always, always going to be tempting to prioritize the cares and the things of this world over the things of the kingdom of God and over the things of eternity. It's always going to be tempting to walk by sight instead of by faith, to use the the contrast that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5. It's always going to be tempting to use his words in 2 Corinthians 3. For it's always going to be tempting to look to the things that are seen, to value and prize those things more than the things that are unseen, to be more occupied with the things that are temporary and fleeting than with the unseen things that are of eternal worth and value. That's always going to be our temptation. And Jesus knew 
that his disciples would always struggle with that temptation to be anxious about the things of this world, about money, about food, about clothing, about worldly cares, in a way that hindered their service to the kingdom of God. And so Jesus said all kinds of things to them like this in Matthew chapter 6. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures in this world, on this earth, where moth and rust destroy. Things are temporary. They fade. They crumble. Don't lay up treasures here where thieves break in and steal. But instead, lay up your treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he said, where your treasure is, whether it's here or there, that's where your heart is also. And then he said to them in that same chapter, Matthew chapter 6, don't be anxious about the cares of your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, things about your body, what you're going to wear. Jesus says, isn't, isn't life about more than food? Isn't the body about more than clothing? He said, look at the birds. They don't spend time sowing and reaping and gathering food into barns and storing and, and laboring, and yet your heavenly Father still feeds them. Are you not of more value than those birds? And which of you, by being anxious for the cares of this world, can add a single day to his life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Look at the flowers in the field and how they grow. They don't toil. They don't spin and weave their own clothes, and yet the Heavenly Father clothes them. Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? You know what Jesus says? He says, that's how unbelievers act. That's what they're occupied with the most. That's what they're concerned about the most. That's what they prioritize. But you, Jesus says, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and trust the heavenly father to add all of these earthly things to you as he sees fit. Similar to what he's saying in Luke 21 where he says heaven and earth will pass away. Think about that. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What are you investing your life in? Things that pass away or the thing which cannot pass away? When he says heaven and earth will pass away, in that context, he doesn't mean heaven as in the place where God dwells. What he means is literally the physical universe above this earth that we live on. The heavens means the trillions of stars and galaxies in the skies above it. All of it. Jesus says, along with this earth that we live on, all of it will pass away. And when he said that to his disciples, Peter understood what he meant. And then Peter went and explained it very clearly in 2 Peter chapter 3. He writes this. This is what it means that the heavens and the earth will pass away. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And he means the return of Jesus will come like a thief, and then on that day, the heavens will pass away with a roar. Again, all of the galaxies in the whole universe 
will pass away with a roar. All of the heavenly bodies, planets, stars will be burned up and dissolved and the earth itself and the works that are done on it will be exposed to that flaming fire of the wrath of God. He's talking about the second coming when Jesus will ride from the highest heaven, the heaven of God's dwelling, on a white horse, leading all of the armies and all of the saints of heaven with him in order to come and pour out full and final judgment on this whole created order that is stained by the curse of sin. And like I said two weeks ago, that day of Christ's coming, that day of the coming fullness of the outpouring of God's holy wrath in this world, that is an eternally more certain reality than the rising of the sun in the east that we take for granted every single day. Because in Paul's own words, as he was preaching to unbelievers in Athens, God has fixed a day, a specific day, in his mind, in his eternal, unchangeable purpose, on which he will judge the world in righteousness through the man whom he has appointed, who is Jesus Christ, the God-man, the risen, reigning Lord. He will return. He will judge the world in righteousness. That day is fixed in God's immutable will and purpose, and it will come, Peter says, like a thief in the night. And he was following Jesus' own words in Matthew 24 when he said that. And what that means is simply nobody will be able to predict it. Nobody will be able to turn on the news and look at all the things that are going on in the world and say, I think I know when it's going to happen. And so because it will be unpredictable, this fixed day when Jesus will come in judgment, many people will be unprepared for it. And when it comes, the entire universe, the the heavens above, the earth upon which we dwell, every person on the earth who does not know Jesus and is not called out upon his name for salvation, will be exposed to the fullness of the Holy wrath of the infinite eternal God and they will pass away with a roar it will all be burned up it will all be dissolved by the indomitable wrath of the holy God and every image bearing creature who does not know the mercy of God through faith in Jesus Christ will spend an eternity in the conscious experience of that agonizing wrath of God and so Because that's true, because that's more true than anything else that you can look at with your eyes and say, I know that's true because I can see it with my eyes. Because this world cannot last forever and will one day pass away and will be replaced by a new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness dwell. Because all of that's real and true, we must, all of us, as Jesus is redeemed People, as the adopted children of the Most High God, like we saw last week, we must keep watch over ourselves constantly and not allow our hearts to be weighed down, as Jesus says in Luke 21, with the cares of this earth and this world. Instead, we have to be people 
whose whole purpose in living in this passing world is defined by Jesus Christ who lives in us and by the priorities and the realities of his coming and of his eternal kingdom of righteousness. And that means, that means two things, simply and primarily. It means one with reference to ourselves and another one with reference to others, every other human being on this planet. And these two things are linked, they're related by the all-certain reality of the coming of Jesus and judgment against this world. First, with reference to ourselves, it means we must not allow our hearts to be too occupied with the cares of this world. Because friends of the world are enemies of God. And if we care more about this world than we care about Jesus, then when Jesus comes, we won't come with him. He'll come for us. In judgment, we must not be primarily anxious for earthly and bodily concerns like money and food and clothing and all of the other cares of this world. Instead, we have to be concerned with the kingdom. And what that means is, secondly, with reference to the rest of mankind, we have to be seeking his kingdom, not just ourselves. Not just by trying to make sure that when Jesus comes, we don't miss the glory train to heaven ourselves. What it means is that instead of being occupied with the cares of this world, what we need to be occupied with is his word. And with doing what we've seen Paul doing all throughout the book of Acts and what we saw him doing in Athens a couple of weeks ago in chapter 17 and calling people everywhere to repent and believe on the name of Jesus Christ because he hasn't come yet, because God is still being patient now, because this is the favorable time, because now is the day of salvation and nothing else matters in light of eternity than the everlasting souls that are out there that do not know and do not believe and need to hear. And so as we move now into chapter 18 of the book of Acts, this is the admonition that we have got to carry with us. And I think it's summed up in the opening verses of this chapter by way of Paul's example. And the admonition is this, are we more occupied With the things of this world or with the word of God? You notice that phrase there that I'm I'm relying on in verse 5 of Acts chapter 18. And it says, when Silas and Timothy finally arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. Testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And I love this word, occupied. And our instinct of it in the English language doesn't get and grasp the fullness of it in the Greek language. And so, as I often do, I like to explain the flavor of these biblical words so that we can more accurately understand their potency in contrast to some of the words that are are a little more limited in our own language. This word occupied is the Greek word synexo comes from a root word that means to bind things together, to hold things together. 
picture a, a, a group of things like, like, like marbles, say. And on their own, if you let go of a bunch of marbles, they fall and they bounce and they roll all over the place. And so in order to keep them together, you need some kind of a container, some kind of a jar maybe, or a bag to hold them all together, something to bind them, something to surround them on all sides. That's what synexo means, and contain them. That's the root idea behind the this, this word synexo, it means to be surrounded by something so that it constrains you. So that in a very real way, it, it, it controls you. It defines what you do. One lexicon says that it means this, to press in from all sides. That's literally how it's used in the Gospel of Mark in one episode where it's describing the throngs of people that were surrounding Jesus from all sides as he was teaching and healing and performing miracles. And they were, they were pressing in all around him. And it uses that word, synexo, from all sides, crowding him. That's the flavor of it. It means to be constrained and pressed. And, and, and Jesus was being moved along by that crowd as they surged around him. That's, that's the flavor of this word. In fact, this is the exact same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14 where he says that the love of Christ controls him. That's our English translation of this same word there. It constrains him. It presses in on him so much that it defines the way he lives his life. The great love of God that has been poured out into his heart and unleashed in him constrains and defines the course of his life, controls him, binds him to this ministry of proclaiming this same gospel love of Jesus to the world. That's what this word means. The question as we come here and continue on in Acts is, what is it that, that is sunexo in your life? What is it that does that the most in your life, Christian? What is it that surrounds you the most? That presses you in on all sides the most? That constrains you and governs you and controls the priorities and the decisions and the course of your life? What is it? Be honest. Is it more the things of this world and the cares of this earth? Or is it more the word of God? In Paul's example here in... Acts 18 is a powerfully important one for us to reflect on as we see him being occupied by God's word. And as we see God's word, therefore, forming Paul's priorities, determining how he spent his time, defining how he preached the gospel, and defining even how he responded to people when they opposed him. The word's got to determine all of that. In our lives, more than our own thoughts, our own ideas, our own feelings, our own desires, and anything in this world. Last time in chapter 17, we saw Paul preaching the gospel back in Athens where he was on the Areopagus, remember, and he was proclaiming the truth that God has revealed in the Word. And he was proclaiming it to all of the philosophers and all of the erudite intellectuals and scholars of the city there in Athens. 
Now, Luke tells us in verse 1 of chapter 18, Paul's moved on from Athens, still waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him. He moves on from Athens to the great city of Corinth. If you look on a map in the back of your Bible, you'll find Corinth lying just to the west of Athens, and you'll see that the city of Corinth is, is situated on this little, this little finger of land called an isthmus between two large bodies of water to the north and to the south, and there's this little strip of land, and Corinth sits right on that little strip of land. And so Corinth had this unusual advantage in the ancient world of being a city that boasted two major seaports, one on the northern coastline and one on the southern coastline. And so people, see, who traveled by sea, people who conducted business and commerce by way of shipping, they could save a ton of time and money by putting into port at one of Corinth's ports and then hauling their cargo or their passengers overland for the, for the few short miles that it took to get to the other port and then continuing on their way instead of having to sail all the way around, see? And what that meant is that Corinth was a popular place for ships to port and commerce to be conducted and travelers to come and gather in. So it was a big city. It was a hub. It was a center of travel and trade. It was a melting pot of people and cultural influences from all around the empire. And so again, just as we've seen with Athens and other places, Corinth was a very, very worldly city full of all of the same kinds of worldly influences and idolatries and false teachings and values and ideals and vices and indulgences and all the godlessness that you can imagine. Specifically, Corinth will learn from Paul's letters that he writes to the church that he'll establish there in Corinth, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Specifically, Corinth was a city that was plagued by sexual immorality and licentiousness of every conceivable kind. And so Paul would have to deal with that over and over again in the letters that he wrote back to the church and to the Christians who had come to faith to, to believe in Jesus there in the city. So needless to say, Corinth was a place that was absolutely ripe for the gospel. And like Santa Cruz, right? And like in Athens, and every other place that Paul went, when he encountered all of the worldliness and all of the godliness, ungodliness in the city, it did absolutely nothing to discourage him from preaching the gospel. It only fueled a passion to preach the message of Jesus Christ crucified. And the reason for that was, just like he'd said back in Athens, Paul knew that God has fixed a day on which to pour out judgment on this world. And that when that day came, Corinth would be one of those cities right in the middle of the crosshairs. And that every day until that day when Jesus returns, every day before that is the day of salvation, the favorable time when all who come to Jesus and call on his name for salvation will be saved. So see, Corinth was ripe for the gospel precisely because Corinth was ripe for 
judgment. And Paul views the reality of Corinth and his responsibility to that city through the lens of the word. He's constrained, he's occupied with the word. And so his response to the ungodliness is defined that way instead of by maybe his own feelings. This is a disgusting place. I don't want anything to do with it. So I'm going to leave and go somewhere more pleasant. Or these filthy, rotten sinners aren't worthy of my time. So I'm not going to bring them any kind of love because they deserve what's coming to them. You know what you do if you hate sinners and you disdain them? You do nothing. Because the coming wrath of God is happening on a fixed day. And if you leave them, they will perish in it. But Paul's heart is full of love and gratitude and urgency and desperation to proclaim the word to these lost people. Corinth was ripe for the gospel precisely because Corinth was ripe for judgment. And so Paul was occupied with the word and occupied with the gospel while he was there. And that's the perspective we've got to cultivate, see, as we live our lives as followers of Jesus in this world. What matters in reality? Is it the stuff that you're primarily occupied with or is it the stuff of eternity? We have, by his great grace, through the power of the gospel, been saved and delivered from the wrath of God that is to come. We have been adopted by God's great unconditional love and made to be his own children. We have been given, as we saw last week, the eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus and with Christ Jesus of the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal kingdom and the presence of God with us there for all of eternity. And so having been given all of that, having been delivered from the wrath that is coming, how should we live while we're still in this world? What kind of selfishness would characterize our hearts and our lives if we, having been given all of that by God's grace, let ourselves, allowed ourselves to be primarily occupied with the cares and the concerns of this world, the treasures and the pleasures of this world, instead of with the kingdom, instead of with the word of God, which is the only place that proclaims the way of salvation, to people in this world that are lost and that are perishing. What would it say about someone who lived in a great big apartment building with hundreds and hundreds of apartments and thousands and thousands of residents whose phone rang in the middle of the night and an anonymous voice said there's a bomb in the building? What kind of a person would it be who then hung up the phone and quietly as they could snuck out of their apartment and left to go to safety without telling the neighbors. And so all of the neighbors perished in the blast while that person went on his merry way. What kind of person would that be? Well, Paul wasn't that kind of person. Paul was occupied with the word of God. Paul was constrained by the love of God and the gospel to be all about the proclamation of that love to the world. Now, flip the coin over. 
That doesn't mean, of course, that being occupied with the word, being constrained by the love of God and the gospel, means that somebody literally spends every last moment, 24-7, preaching the gospel. I think Jesus even showed us that, didn't he? Jesus took time to eat. Jesus took time to sleep. Jesus took time even to get away, we read in the Gospels on occasion, from the crowds, from the ministry, in order to rest and to find refreshment for his mind, for his body. And the, the Word of God teaches us, doesn't it, that, that our God is a good Father. The Word of God teaches us that, that our Heavenly Father delights in his mercy and in his kindness, in giving his children good things to enjoy in this world. Good food, good drink, good fellowship, good times of rest and refreshment, times even of leisure and recreation, times of enjoyment, all of which we can receive from him and need to receive from him and enjoy with grateful hearts. And we need to enjoy them in the way that he intends for us to enjoy them. Which just means that we always understand them to be gifts from him. And that we always keep them in their proper place. And that we never indulge in them too much or selfishly or greedily or ungratefully. We never let ourselves be occupied with the things of this world more than God wills, more than God intends, more than, more than what would please God simply because it pleases us. Because we're here to live our lives in service to him. We're here to live our lives in service to his kingdom. And so even here in Acts chapter 18, we see a hint of this in the life of the Apostle Paul, don't we? We see that being occupied by the word didn't mean that he literally did nothing else than preaching the gospel every moment of his life 24-7. And so Luke tells us in verses 1 through 3 that when Paul came to Corinth, he met a Jewish couple named Aquila and Priscilla who had moved to Corinth from Italy further out to the west because the emperor Claudius in Rome had expelled all of the Jews from Rome. And we're told here that Aquila and Priscilla were tent makers by trade, and that's exactly what it sounds like. They made tents. They made a living making tents and selling them to people. And you can imagine in the ancient world that would be a good job to have. That would be a good living, right? Because in the ancient world and still in many parts of the world today, there's Never a shortage of demand for, for tents, for all kinds of reasons. People need tents to live in, to cover their livestock with, to travel with, to use in marketplaces, to use for military purposes. There's all kinds of reasons, especially in the ancient world, people always needed tents. And one thing you know about tents, they're made of fabric, so they wear down, and, and before long you need a new tent. So tent making was one of those jobs where you would always have work. And Aquila and Priscilla had a good business of making tents. And they moved that business down to Corinth after, after getting kicked out, booted out of Rome. And so it says, when Paul got to Corinth, verse 2 says that he went to see Aquila and Priscilla precisely because he was of the same trade. 
Paul knew how to make tents also. Paul had used that skill to earn money, to make a living, to support himself. And so verse 3 says, Because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And then verse 4 says that every, every week on the Sabbath, Paul would follow his customary pattern of going into the synagogue in Corinth and reasoning, dialoguing, remember trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks that Jesus is the true Messiah and that Jesus' name is the only name under heaven by which people may be saved. So, you see what it looked like in Paul's actual life? He worked during the week so that he could support himself, so that he wasn't going to be a burden to the young, fledgling churches that he had planted that only had a few people who didn't have a lot of money, so that he could eat so that he could live, so that while he was living, he could preach the gospel to the world. He didn't, see, he didn't, the, it was, it's all about the reason why you work. He didn't work so that he could be occupied with or constrained by the cares and priorities and things of this world. And that's how a lot of us can be tempted to work. I work so that I can have all of the, the things that make my life enjoyable, Instead of, I work so that I can be devoted to the kingdom while I live in this world. So, see, it's not a matter, right, of whether or not somebody earns the money that they need to live in this world by being paid vocationally to do ministry, like as a pastor or as a missionary. It's not a matter of whether that's how they earn their money or whether they make their money Making tents, or being electricians, or piano tuners, or working in the water industry, or whatever else you guys do out there. Those are good, noble, necessary jobs and vocations that are good for Christians to do. Doesn't matter how you make your how you make your living. It's not, it doesn't even matter how much money you make in this world. Some people will make a little. Some people will make a ton. Doesn't matter. Everybody needs to give praise and thanks to God for whatever amount he blesses them with and be careful not to love the money or the things that the money can buy more than we love our God and not to be tempted to to lay up treasures in this world more than we're laying up treasures in the kingdom and valuing and prizing and prioritizing and being occupied with the things of eternity. Wealthy people who are grateful to God, who are devoted to his kingdom, are good for the church. And so the point here is simply that being occupied with the word of God in verse 5 didn't mean that Paul didn't do anything except teaching and preaching the word. Because verse 3 tells us that he spent many days during the week working, making tents, so that then he could survive in this world and be able to go on the Sabbath and proclaim the gospel. And so the point is simply that being occupied by the word and not the world helped Paul keep his priorities straight and in a healthy balance while he served the kingdom of God in this world. And every Christian needs, first of all, to make sure that the same is true for all of us, that our priorities are being defined by the word. No matter what we do for a living, no matter how much money we make, 
that our priorities are being defined by the word, by the kingdom, by eternity, not by the world and the things that it values and its treasures. And Paul, of course, being occupied with the word, that meant that he ultimately saw all of the things in his life in relation first to the kingdom of God and not to himself or his own interests. So whatever Paul did in this world was in service not to Paul, but to the kingdom, to the ministry of the word of God. He wasn't in service to self. He wasn't in service to his own desires. He was here for the kingdom and not for himself, not for the treasures, not for the cares of this world, and so must we all be. And then being occupied with the word also meant that the word of God in Paul's life, mind, heart, gave definition to the way that he preached the word and also to how he responded to people's reactions to the word that he preached. And these are important things for us to glean from also. In the first letter that Paul wrote to the church that ends up getting established and built here in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, Paul would remind this church, looking back on this time in Acts 18, Paul would remind this church in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 of how he preached, how the word shaped his preaching and defined it. When I first came to you, brethren, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so I was with you, he says, in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. And my speech, my message wasn't in plausible words of wisdom it was in demonstration of the spirit and his power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but on the power of God so see for Paul being occupied with the word meant that when he proclaimed the word when he taught it when he called people to salvation The content of his message, the content of his preaching wasn't determined by his own wisdom, the wisdom of the world, what people from the world were expecting and were normally impressed by and motivated by and how they would normally respond to things. The content was simply determined by the word itself. And so Paul didn't specialize in great stories and awesome illustrations and anecdotes and, and profound philosophical reasoning. Again, things that the world would normally respond to. And that's, see, that's a failure in much of preaching, isn't it? It's not just driven by the word first and foremost. It's driven by a desire to look at the world and say, well, what do they like? How do they respond? They like stand-up comedians, so the preacher should act like a stand-up comedian and pattern himself after that and tell funny stories. They like this kind of philosophy. They respond to this kind of thing. So let's do that. Paul says, look, if the work that needs to be done cannot be done by any power in this world, it often gets done against all of the expectations of this world. And the power that is needed to change human hearts only lies in the word of God itself. So that's all I'm going to do is just preach it. 
Just preach the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. Because Paul knows, Paul, Paul's humble, right? Paul knows, I don't have any power in myself, in my rhetorical skills, in my wisdom, in my intellect, in my power of persuasion. I don't have any power or any ability to save someone's eternal soul. And neither do you. And neither do I. Paul knew that the problem of unbelief, it's not just an intellectual problem first and foremost. It's not just a matter of ignorant minds. It's a matter of hard, sinful hearts that are suppressing the truth of God. And so Paul knew that he possessed no power in himself to change the sinful heart condition in any person's life. Because that power is nothing short of raising someone from the dead. And only God possesses that power. Paul knew that God has ordained to put his sovereign, supernatural, life-giving, heart-renewing power to work through his word. Which is living and which is active. And through the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And so for Paul, being occupied with the word of God meant that he simply relied on the word of God and no earthly powers of persuasion in carrying out the ministry of the word. How refreshing and freeing is that? You say, I have an unbelieving friend and they're smarter than me. And they know more about science than I do. And they know more about philosophy. Who cares? Just tell them the word. And if the Holy Spirit wants to open blind eyes and enliven a dead heart, he will. Let the word of God be be bound by it. Be surrounded with it. Be immersed in it so much. Be familiar with it to the the level that, that you would have the ability to to, to just be in a conversation with a coworker or a neighbor or a family member or a person that you meet out there in the world and simply say, well, you know, you know what God's word says about that. And find ways to make a defense of the hope that lies within you. Simply preach the word. Being occupied by the word means letting the word define the priorities of your life. And the way in which you present the word to the people who need to hear it. And then thirdly, it also means here that the word of God, being occupied by the word, meant that the word of God defined and constrained and shaped Paul's response to how people received the word that he proclaimed to them. And verse 6 tells us that once again in Corinth, when he preached in the synagogue on the Sabbath, the response wasn't friendly like it was in Berea, remember? Not here. Here, when he proclaimed the word of God to the Jews, they opposed him and they reviled him. Two more powerful words that we need to understand. The word opposed means to actively resist. So they didn't just ignore him. They didn't just go, okay, whatever, you bumbling fool, I don't have time for you. They pushed back actively. They rejected. This is a word that literally comes from a word that means to array yourself against someone in battle. 
It's a military word. That's what the Jews were doing to Paul in response to the word that he preached. Right? They didn't just go, bah, whatever. Yeah. It's not for me. I'm going to go on my business. They literally arrayed themselves against him as in battle. They became combative. What do you do when they become combative? Well, you've got the sword of the spirit. Swing it. The word reviled there. They opposed and they reviled. Verse 6 says it's literally the Greek word blasphemos. Blasphemy. It's just a word that means to verbally assault somebody and say things that are designed to tear them down. To verbally abuse someone. So what the Jews did is they didn't just say, well, I disagree. And they didn't just say, well, let me, I'm going to try to prove you wrong. No, they made it personal. They went ad hominem on Paul. They set themselves against him and not just his message. They assaulted him. They slandered him. They verbally attacked and abused him. And how did Paul respond to them? I'll tell you how my flesh is tempted to respond when someone opposes me. Somebody arrays themselves against me. Someone reviles me. Someone makes it personal. Someone starts verbally assaulting me. You know what my flesh wants to do? My flesh wants to keep it personal and start fighting fire with fire. You want to fight? I can fight. That's what my flesh wants to do. And honestly, that's what I see too many Christians doing in response to unbelief. There's a temptation on one side to capitulate when in dialogue with an unbeliever and say, well, Okay, this whole thing about homosexuality isn't real popular, so let me, let's just agree to disagree on that one. Or worse, take up their side on that one so that maybe you can gain some common ground. So there's a temptation to capitulate on one side. Then there's a temptation and a tendency on the other side to return fire and to start expressing vitriol and and verbal assault back at them. And I see too many Christians doing that. And it's not more noble. It's not more Christ-like. It's not going to work. The anger of man cannot achieve the righteousness of God, James says. But it's what too many conservative Christians do. And so these... These debates between believers and unbelievers all too often degenerate into personal assaults and both sides are reviling each other. Because for too many people, they're, they're, they're responding from the flesh and they're responding in the way the world responds. And so for them, the goal isn't simply to proclaim the word and to let the word do its work and to let God be the sovereign savior and and changer of minds and opener of eyes and reviver of hearts. For them, maybe for you sometimes, the temptation is to be right. It's just pride. For them, the goal in their flesh is to win the arguments. Or to avenge themselves for being reviled. Because they're constrained by their own pride. Instead of being occupied 
with the word of God and constrained by the love of God and driven by the spirit of God who bears the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control in his people. And this is what we see in Paul here. We can all too often and all too easily be occupied with our own fleshly passions more so than we are with God's living active word. Paul knew it's not about Paul. Paul didn't let himself get dragged into a verbal fist fight when he made it personal. Paul didn't take it personally and respond in kind by returning fire and being combative and arguing and disputing. And do you know why? Because he was occupied with the word. Because the word defined the response. And Jesus, right, who is the living word, had said to his own disciples, hadn't he? That if they're going to be his ambassadors in this world, then they need to be people who do what? Who turn the other cheek. Who do not return evil for evil. Who if someone comes up and steals your outer garment, you give them your inner garment as well. You don't avenge yourself. You bless those who curse you. You pray for those who persecute you. That's what the word of God said. God had said in his word in the Old Testament that vengeance belongs to him, right? Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 94, Paul would quote those same words in Romans 12, Hebrews 10. And so Paul, when people opposed Paul, when people reviled Paul and assaulted Paul, remember Paul by nature before he was a Christian was a pretty mean, nasty guy. Right? He's not just naturally hardwired as this docile, gentle, smiling. He was out there persecuting people. But here he's not because he's not constrained by Paul. He's not defined. It's not about Paul. It's about the Word and the Spirit. And so Paul doesn't take vengeance into his own hands. Paul doesn't revile back because Jesus, who dwells in Paul, when Jesus was reviled, Jesus didn't revile in return, the scriptures say, 1 Peter chapter 2. When Jesus suffered, he didn't threaten. Why? Because he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. You know what that means? It means let God be God. Don't try to be God. Don't try to be the judge. Don't try to be the avenger. He's a big God. He doesn't need us to fight his battles for him. He can take care of himself. One day he will, right? And so Paul's whole perspective was governed by God's word. And so he realized that when the Jews in Corinth were opposing him and were assaulting him, reviling him, that ultimately what were they doing? It's not about Paul ultimately, and he knows that because ultimately he knows they're opposing and reviling God himself, right? Ultimately, they're shaking their fists at him and raging against him like Psalm 2 reveals. I mean, hadn't Jesus himself said to Paul way back when he was still Saul in chapter 9 and he was an unbeliever 
and unregenerate and was still persecuting Christians? Didn't Jesus say to him there on the Damascus Road, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul understood even back then, I was persecuting these people, but in doing that, ultimately I was persecuting Jesus. All opposition to the messengers of God's word ultimately is opposition to God himself. And Paul knows that. Paul knows it's not about him. It's about people raging against the Lord himself. And he knows the Lord can take care of himself. Vengeance belongs to God and not to us. God has fixed a day on which God will judge the whole world through Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed to do that. He hasn't appointed you to do that. He doesn't need us. He doesn't want us to act as vehicles of judgment and wrath. He wants us to be vessels of his mercy during the favorable time. He wants us to tell everyone, yeah, that his wrath and his judgment are coming. And that now is the day of salvation. Now is the favorable time. And to point them to the mercy and grace and love of Jesus. And to do it in a way that manifests mercy and grace and love. And so Paul, when he was opposed, when he was reviled, didn't take things personally. He let the word do its work. He didn't try to do it for it. He let the sovereign Holy Spirit be the one to decide. He didn't try to be sovereign for God and try to wrestle people into submission. God's the one who can soften hearts and open eyes and save souls. And if he does, he does. Hallelujah. If he doesn't, it's not up to me. So here's what Paul did when the Jews rejected the word and actively opposed him and abusively reviled him. Verse 6, when they did that, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads for I am innocent. And from now on, I'm going I'm to go preach to the Gentiles. You know what he's doing there? Again, he's being occupied by the word because Both of those statements, both of those things, shaking out his garments and saying, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent, come from the word of God. They come from the Old Testament. He shook out his garments. The the robes that men wore were were not hand-tailored, right? They were just made in a uniform size and length, and you'd go get one at the marketplace and put it on. And if you were short like Paul was, it probably hung down and dragged on the ground around you. And so you'd have to hem it up. And and sew a little hem in the bottom of your garment so that it didn't drag. And then as you're walking around the dirty, dusty streets of the empire, that hem would then get kind of like a little envelope, would like get filled up with dust and dirt and gravel and little pebbles, right? So every once in a while, you'd shake that out. Get all that, and that's what Paul does here. Why does he do that? Well, it was symbolic, see, of something that God's word said in the Old Testament scriptures. Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah was appointed by God to be the governor of the people who had come back to Jerusalem after the exile in Babylon. And, and when they got back after God had punished them for their sin, they were still sinning. 
And specifically, there were people in power who were taking advantage of the people beneath them, and so the poor people were being oppressed, that kind of thing. And Nehemiah, in chapter 5, condemns that injustice, and he sets things right, and he makes the oppressors promise to be just, to be merciful. And then he says to them, this is Nehemiah 5 and verse 13, Here's what he did. You promise you're going to be just. And then he shakes out the folds of his garment and says, So may God shake out every man from his own house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. So, so see, it's a picture. Of if, they don't, if they don't repent of their sin, then this is what God's going to do to you. He's going to shake you out and cast you away from himself. And that's, see, that's what, it's a picture of discipline. It's a picture of judgment. And that's what Paul's saying. Not that he's going to judge them, but, but look, you Jewish people, you understand the Old Testament. You understand this imagery. I'm just going to leave you with this last picture and this last plea to repent, lest God shake you out. We don't have to be the ones to shake sinners out because ultimately they're sinning against God. And ultimately God who is all-knowing and all-wise and holy and just and sovereign will judge those who refuse to honor him. And you can count on that. You don't have to be the judge. You're just the messenger of the message of mercy. And that has to do with the, the second thing that Paul says here. He says, your blood isn't on me, it's on your own head. And there too, he's referring to and, and quoting from and being guided by being occupied with the word of God in the Old Testament scriptures. This time from Ezekiel chapter 18 and chapter 33. God tells Ezekiel, look, you, as my prophet, you need, to, you need to tell these people to repent. You need to give them this message. And if you give them the message and they refuse to repent, then it's not on you, it's on them. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. And again, it's refreshing, right? Paul, Ezekiel was, was, was appointed by God to be the watchman on the wall of the city that would look at night and see if the enemies were coming. And then to blow the trumpet and sound the alarm, that's all you got to do. You don't got to go out there and destroy the enemies. And you don't have to make everybody inside do whatever they have to do. You just have to blow the trumpet. Just, just preach the message. And Paul says, I'm the watchman. I'm not here to save you. I'm here to tell you about the one who can save you. And I'm here to tell you what happens if you don't accept his salvation. And if you won't, then your blood's not on me. If you keep sleeping, if you ignore it, if you end up being consumed by the wrath of God that is to come, it's not on me. And so listen, if we fail to be faithful in sounding the alarm, in giving the warning, in being the watchmen who say, hey, the wrath of God is coming on a fixed day and people need to turn from their sins and turn to Jesus and be saved by his unconditional love and mercy alone. If we fail to do that, then it's on us. But if we're faithful 
to just be vessels of his mercy and proclaim the gospel and tell people about this wrath that is to come and about the only one name under heaven by which they can be saved, then we can leave their everlasting souls up to God. You don't have to be the sovereign one. You don't have to be the omnipotent one. You don't have to be the judge. Just be the watchman. Just be the messenger. Just be faithful. Just be faithful. Just give the warning. Just sow the seeds. Just proclaim the gospel. Just be occupied by the word of God and not the concerns of this fleeting world. Tell people with boldness, tell people with confidence about the wrath of God that is coming and plead with them to come to Jesus. If they reject it, they're rejecting him. If they revile you, they're reviling him. And you're not their savior, he is. You're not the sovereign one who can open their eyes, he is. Just make sure that you're not so occupied with your own cares and desires and the treasures of this world that your heart is not tuned like Paul's was in Athens and Corinth to the eternal concerns of those who are in their sins. Be occupied. Be surrounded by. Be pressed in on all sides by. Be constrained by. Be driven and governed by the living and active and divinely powerful word of God. Because this world is passing away. And God has fixed a day and judgment is coming. And now is the only favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we pray that you would continue to convict us of these realities. And help us to see the ways in which we are more occupied with the things of this world, the cares of our own flesh and the treasures of this earth than we are with your kingdom and righteousness. Father, would you glorify yourself in your church by creating in us a holy urgency and a holy boldness and conviction to be people who are occupied by your word in all that we do and say. To be people who trust it to be powerful unto salvation. To be people who, Father, if we, if we go out faithfully proclaiming it and become reviled, that don't revile back, but that be like our master and turn the other cheek and entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly and become vessels of mercy and of gospel power that many might be saved. Father, work in your people and work in your church. Let the light shine, bring revival to our world. Build your church. Father, we have to believe that the only reason Jesus isn't coming yet is because your patience is still at work in this world and there are people that need to be saved. So, Father, help us to be about this business and let us glorify you in the process, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.